The Macro View, episode 32. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right, so here we are in the final episode of this uh, five-part series on understanding the fundamentals of financial markets. So we started out with savings, lending, and banking. And then in part two, we expanded that into equity investing. Then in part three, we introduced complex securities and derivatives. And on Thursday night, we discussed the role of losses and the distressed asset market. Lastly, but not least, tonight we introduce government into the picture and discuss the distortions that the state causes. So the state is involved in absolutely every aspect of the financial market. Do not buy the mainstream media, mainstream economists, and politicians' pitch that financial deregulation caused the financial crisis. It's a full load of baloney. For the purposes of putting the great myth to rest, I want to start out by discussing some of the massive distortions caused by government interventions in the financial market leading up to the financial crisis. I'm going to start out with the so-called repeal of Glass-Steagall. It seems to have become, while false, common knowledge that Glass, the Glass-Steagall Act, or was known as the Glass-Steagall Act, the National Banking Act of 1933, was fully repealed and replaced with nothing. Now, this is completely untrue. First off, Glass-Steagall was never repealed. There was one single provision in Glass-Steagall, the separation of commercial and investment banks, that was in fact repealed in 1999 as part of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which I'll refer to as the GLB Act going forward. But the rest of Glass-Steagall, except where language was updated, not replaced or repealed by GLB, was in fact left intact. Second, and often cited as a driver of the housing bubble, and correctly so, is the Community Reinvestment Act. The CRA, which dramatically increased the capacity of funding of government-sponsored entities that we have come to know as Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, was at first a suggestion. And it basically stated that government would like if banks would make and if Fannie and Freddie would, would purchase, securitize, and insure more loans to low-income families for housing. This was originally proposed by Gerald Ford, but then in, in 76, after uh, Carter won the election and took office, it was picked up by Jimmy Carter and it was passed by the House and Senate and signed off by, uh, by President Carter. It, along with inflation, drove a housing bubble back in the 80s, although nothing like what we saw in the more recent crisis as it was, it, CRA wasn't nearly as expansive as it, as it became later on. So Reagan and Bush Sr. both expanded the CRA, you know, seeking to garner favor with low-income voters. But again, this did very little. It wasn't until the adjustments made under the Clinton administration where the suggestion that Fannie and Freddie reserve a reasonable portion, quote-unquote, of their funding to low-income homes changed to a mandate that they reserve 30%, of which later jumped to 40%, and which even later jumped as high as 50 56% of their capacity be reserved for low-income loans. The CRA updates also all but forced banks to actually make these loans. Banks that did not cooperate were looked upon with greater scrutiny and were much more likely to become subject to federal discrimination lawsuits. 
So first off, just having a government entity that buys mortgage loans from banks, packages, packages them in an MBS, insures them, and then sells them off to pension funds and, and other banks creates a serious moral hazard in lending. If banks know that they can find a buyer for these loans, they're more likely to make them. Second, threatening banks that don't make these bad loans with discrimination lawsuits adds a second layer of moral hazard. Now, instead of making loans to capture a net interest margin and assuming reasonable risks while doing so, banks make loans for the sake of avoiding lawsuit that could close their doors once and for all. Before we get to our first break, I want to add in the fact that for those of you out there that may question the extensiveness of GLB and CRA, which you can find the full text to on tonight's uh, show page, which is macroviewnews.com. It'll be the first post available there. I want to remind everybody that there were two, albeit major, only two corporate scandals in the early 2000s, Enron and WorldCom, which one after another became the largest Chapter 7 bankruptcies in history up to that point. And that led to what, what we now know as the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. So when we get back, I'm going to discuss Sarbanes-Oxley and the damage that it did to financial markets, their competitiveness, and the integrity of such markets. But we first have to get to this quick message. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist straw men. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' his System and Its Fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western Civilization History courses, Freedom's Progress, the History of Political Thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. Okay, everybody, we're back. So Sarbanes-Oxley essentially implemented new accounting standards, supposedly. What Sarbanes-Oxley actually did, and sorry, it's a little bit of a tongue twister there, was dramatically drive up the price of audits and thus the cost of being a publicly traded company. So Sarbanes-Oxley essentially cartelized the auditing industry and it also introduced a whole new type of moral hazard. So remember, folks, We've discussed this before. Anytime the government regulates something, people care a little bit less about doing their own due diligence. If a company or an industry or a product is regulated by the government, two things happen. The real standards of quality, both in process and product, stagnate. Instead of having competitive standards for process and product driven by entrepreneurs, 
bureaucrats dictate the minimum acceptable standard to which companies comply and do no more than comply. Now that chunk of their budget must be dedicated to such compliance. So there's no extra room, nor does it make any sense to find extra room for innovating and coming up with new and higher standards. Absent bureaucratic dictated standards, companies not only have to compete against each other to come up with the best possible standards, but they also have the capital to do so. Accounting standards are no different. So when Sarbanes-Oxley passed, there were approximately 5,500 publicly traded companies. This is the second effect that Sarbanes-Oxley had. There are about 5,550 companies that were publicly traded, listed on exchanges. This is at the beginning of 2002, and Sarbanes-Oxley was passed a little bit into 2002. Now, this excludes over-the-counter markets. So essentially, these were companies that were traded on basically the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Now, prior to the financial crisis, which not only put a number of firms out of business, but also led to historically low interest rates, allowing firms to finance their own public to private buyouts, and also led to private equity firms being able to more easily finance public to private buyouts of publicly traded firms. Prior to the financial crisis, the number of publicly traded firms had dropped by approximately 18.4%. Now, while it is true, from the, that's from the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley to 2007. Now, while it is true that this partially had to do with the dot-com bubble bursting and many of the zero-revenue website companies going out of business, and while it is true that the trend had begun downward in 1997 after peaking about 7,300 companies in 96, the fact is that by the time Enron and WorldCom went bust and by the time Sarbanes-Oxley had passed, the companies that were going to go bankrupt from the dot-com crisis had already been weeded out. The following decade, however, was met with a continued decline in the number of publicly traded companies. By 2007, there were fewer publicly traded companies than there were in 1975. The main reason for this was Sarbanes-Oxley. The cost of going public and the cost of maintaining good standing as a public company went through the roof following the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley, by some estimates as much as 67%. Many firms just found it far too unreasonable to fork over a lot of these costs that could be used to reinvest in in their business and reinvest in the most profitable parts of their business. And they just found it unreasonable. But this hurts investors, especially small investors that are prevented from investing in the private, private market and in private investments largely they're still prevented. It has opened up a little bit, uh, but largely they're still prevented due to what's known as accredited investor laws. Now, the Jobs Act did change a little bit of that to give a little bit of credit where credit is due, but it's still, if if you talk to any, any realistic and legitimate and respected securities attorney, They'll tell you that it really still is is uh, basically did very little. It did it did something for companies that are able to garner a fifty million dollar plus valuation, but for companies smaller than that, it really did very very little. But Sorbanes Oxley and the and the reduction in the number of publicly traded companies reduces the number of investment options. It reduces the competition for capital. It decreases the amount of capital investment that a company can acquire through a public offering and pushes 
the point at which it makes sense for a company to go public further down the growth chain. This ultimately hurts human progress as capital investment from real savings is the primary driver of technological innovation and an increasing standard of living. And now with this new rule and pushing the point at which companies are willing to go public and and gain access to public capital, when I say public, I mean the broad public, not government, but at the point when it pushes it further down the line, that means that it's longer until that company goes out and gains access to that capital and is able to invest in the innovative uh, the innovative technologies that will increase the standard of living going forward. So we, we, we've now debunked the myth of financial deregulation causing the financial crisis. There's actually a ton of financial regulation and government intervention in financial markets leading up to the crisis. Anyone still blaming deregulation for the crisis is obviously shilling for government interventionism and likely trying to become an economic advisor for some politician. Now, for the remainder of the show, we're going to touch on some of the other distortions and manipulations caused by government intervention. So we're going to talk about bailouts, Dodd-Frank, the SBA, the SEC, and the FDIC. We're not going to talk about the Fed tonight. If you want to get a deep discussion of the Fed, I did a two-part series on the Federal Reserve. I'll link to those two episodes on tonight's show page at macroviewnews.com. But our discussion on the Fed came in episodes 26 and 27. We really just don't have time to rehash that discussion in uh, in tonight's episode or in, in this series. So when we get back from a quick break, we'll finish up our discussion of government distortion in the financial markets. So stick stick with us here. We will be right back. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods's master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Boot Camp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. All right, so there's a lot to get to and we don't have a lot of time. So I want to start with the bailouts that occurred in 2008. So the bailouts were atrocious. Not only was it a clear violation of free market principles and a de facto nationalization of the banking industry, but it set up an extremely divisive uh, situation between Main Street and Wall Street for obvious reasons. I mean, it really pissed people off. You know, here you had all these people being laid off, struggling to survive. Their homes were being foreclosed on. 
and the banks that lent the money, the groups that made the mistakes of allocating resources to poor and risky uses, were getting a boatload of dough from the government to continue operating. Putting anger aside, putting the treason committed by politicians aside, the bailout set a very dangerous precedent as well. And I'm not quite sure if it has been, and if it hasn't been, how it will be reversed. Now, that precedent was a violation of bankruptcy laws. So as we discussed, in the event of lip liquidation, creditors get paid back first. And while there some, were some scenarios where an acquiring bank did pay off creditors when buying a failed bank, there were also many scenarios where without equity values going to zero, creditors were forced to take haircuts during a reorganization process while equity holders were essentially bailed out with taxpayer money. Now, this was not only under the Bush administration, but this also occurred with the Obama administration when they used TARP funds to bail out the auto industry, which was never supposed to happen to begin with. With the auto bailouts, creditors got it stuck to them. And the UAW, the United Auto Workers, the union, had their pension obligations bailed out, which were totally outlandish and unrealistic given the global economy and the need to compete with foreign car makers. There was an absolutely clear as day violation of bankruptcy laws, and it was a very dangerous precedent. It will continue to, to make lenders think twice before both lending to a bank and especially to a manufacturing company that has union contracts. So the next distortion I want to discuss is Dodd-Frank, the behemoth regulation uh, or package of regulations that's supposed to save us from the hardship of a financial crisis again. Now, Dodd-Frank is 100% based on a lie. And that is the lie that the collapse of Lehman Brothers caused the collapse of many other firms, which is totally unsubstantiated and has been refuted over and over again. Now, Peter Wallison, uh, who is a scholar at, at the American Enterprise Institute, has literally written an entire book on this. I mean, it's, it's no joke of a book either. It's 552 pages, which considering Dodd-Frank was well over 1,000 pages, it was a pretty damn good job of summarizing the law debunking the inherent myths that led to it and highlighting the issues that we are likely to face going forward. So first and foremost, he highlights that Dodd-Frank did absolutely nothing to address so-called too big to fail. And he also highlights the issues with, with so-called financial stability oversight committee and how it replaced the market process for allocating capital with a bureaucratic one, something that will surely lead to another crisis down the road. Now, I don't have time if I want to get to the other agencies mentioned here and to go over all of the issues with this massive bill. But one of the big issues that he points out is, is now a significant regulation imposed on non-bank financial institutions under the systemically important financial institution or SIFI designation. Now, this, this SIFI designation for non-bank financial institutions has been extended to hedge funds, to insurance companies, and to others, which actually grant them access to future TARP funds, which is still existing. So it, 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 the TARP still exists. If there were to be another crisis, TARP could be used again to bail out uh, financial institutions again. And now insurance companies and hedge funds can gain access to those TARP funds because of the SIFI 
uh, designation. So this actually creates a massive additional moral hazard in these other industries that had nothing to do with banking. And it also disrupts the previously competitive nature of some of these industries, causing an effective government-granted cartel to the biggest firms, now which have essentially no risk of going under and have no risk of, of you know, the investors have no risk or very limited risk of losing money if they invest in these specific SIFI designated organizations. So next is the SBA. The SBA, don't get it wrong, is a fully politicized organization. I mean, it sounds like a good idea to a lot of people. You guarantee a portion of bank loans to businesses that otherwise wouldn't qualify, and you can stimulate more, more business investment, and you can stimulate more startups and create more jobs, right? But there are two major issues with it. There's both inherently two major issues with it, and then there's also an explicitly major issue that due to the government's direction of the SEB, S, uh, SBA. And that's a third issue that's, that's just as bad, honestly. So the first problem inherent with the SBA is that it only exists as a result of government guaranteeing bank loans for housing and real estate projects, which once the government started doing, sucked up a larger and larger portion of a bank's finite capital. So this meant less capital available for business loans and small businesses were being neglected by banks as a result of government guaranteeing housing loans. So the, the second problem is that even absent government guarantees of housing loans, it would push banks to make loans to businesses that otherwise wouldn't qualify due to their risk profile. This means necessarily that it would divert capital away from businesses that could qualify for such loans. Businesses that serve more urgent consumer demands and have less risky business models. The last issue with the SB, uh, SBA, which is an issue that is likely to change under the Trump administration, at least slightly, though it'll probably just be more of a redirection under the Trump administration, is that the SBA under the Obama administration became an affirmative action lender, almost exclusively. So the business model, the risk inherent, the owner experience, collateral posted, all that no longer mattered. The SBA was directed by the Obama administration to focus on guaranteeing loans of racial, gender, or sexual preference minority groups, as well as towards disabled small business owners. This is just a, an absurd idea. Lending is not about creating so-called so social justice or cosmic justice. Lending is about earning a reasonable rate of return while assuming as little risk as possible. The race, gender, or sexual preference, or the physical ability of the borrower should have absolutely nothing to do with the lending process. Once again, all this does is shift the bank's limited capital from businesses that would qualify for a loan toward identity groups with the quality of the loan being meaningless, the quality of the business being meaningless. The SBA also became an environmental activist lender. The SBA was also directed at the behest of the Obama administration to dramatically increase the number of green, quote unquote, so-called green business loans that it made. So disregard cost, disregard viability. If the business was supposedly doing something that could even potentially help reduce CO2 emissions, it was now extra qualified for the SBA programs. Lastly, we're going to try and cram in the discussion on both the FDIC and the SEC. 
So the FDIC, in conjunction with the Fed, is the main regulator for national banks. The FDIC guarantees deposits up to a certain amount, which creates a massive depositor moral hazard aside from the bank moral hazard that, that, that's created because banks know that they'll be bailed out by the FDIC and they don't have liabilities uh, that, that extend beyond a bankruptcy regarding their depositors. So this also reduces the competitiveness of, of banks. So instead of caring about what the bank actually does with your money when you deposit it, all you care about now is the FDIC insured sign and that further cartelized the banking industry. It also removed any potential to go back to owner liability for deposits. And lastly, the FDIC failed. It failed at its job. The FDIC had it done its job, which was to prevent runs on banks and to prevent more generally bank failures as a result of runs on banks. If you go back to the discussion we had on the Fed in episode 27, you'll get a little bit more uh, a little bit more light shed on that specific issue. It, it, but if it had done its job, then we wouldn't have had the savings and loans crisis in the 80s, and we wouldn't have had the financial crisis of 2008. Now, finally, is the SEC. The SEC is an ultra-paternalistic organization. They openly believe that individual investors are stupid, that they cannot make good decisions, and as a result, the SEC attempts to block most of what comes in front of them regarding new financial instruments. This is especially true for innovative financial instruments, things that haven't been done before. The SEC's primary job is to prevent new opportunities from being presented to investors as much as they can realistically. And as a result, they act as a giant barrier to new non-bank financial services companies and they further the power of Wall Street. Despite the fact that most Americans would agree that Wall Street culture is corrupted, despite the fact that most people would agree that Wall Street does not have their best interest in mind, the SEC continues to prevent mainstream competitors, smart people with strong proof of knowledge and ability, from coming in and competing with Wall Street. The combination of these bureaucracies and the massive amount of financial regulations imposed on the American economy has devastating effects. And worst of all, it dramatically reduces the number of options and the cost of options offered up to the American populace. The result is the powers that be remain in power and nothing ever changes. Standards stagnate, corruption and crony dealings rule, the market entrepreneur is subdued while the political entrepreneur succeeds. Well, that's it for tonight, folks. And that is it for our five-part series on the fundamentals of financial markets. I hope everybody has enjoyed tonight and the last week's worth of episodes. Now that we've completed this series, I'm sure listeners are wondering what's coming up next. So coming up, I will be hosting a three-part series on the origins of money. I was going to introduce the concept of money and its origins in one of the episodes in this series, but I, I decided you know, I, I, it really deserves its own series. So starting next week, we'll be discussing the origins of money, and we'll be doing so from the view laid out by the founders of the Austrian School of Economics, of course. Do not miss, it, miss out on, the, these, uh, on these episodes and on this series. It will be a very informative series, and I'm sure that everybody's going to really thoroughly enjoy it. So if you're not listening to tonight's show from the show page, head over to MacroView News where you'll find links to all sorts of resources related to this episode. You'll find every episode of the Macro View there as well. And further, while you're there, 
Look for the Twitter and Facebook links so that you can follow us on social media. If you enjoy listening to the Macro View and don't want to miss future episodes, subscribe to our mailing list where you'll have new episodes delivered to your inbox right when they're released. Most importantly, most importantly, folks, do not forget to share us with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys their weekend. We'll be back Monday. Take care, folks.